AT&T Threat Track is a roundtable discussion of security trends and news. Full video of this program can be found on YouTube by searching for AT&T Threat Track. John, I think you have a timely story about uh, TurboTax, given tax season's right around the corner. So uh, what do you have? For I us? do, and there's a couple of reasons I wanted to talk about this story, you know, especially since, you know, tax time is coming up. But there's a couple of things that going on in this story that um, I thought were important to point out to people. So the basic gist is Intuit, who runs uh, TurboTax, or the company behind TurboTax, they um, discovered through an audit that they were doing that um, there is a possibility that a few accounts might have been uh, accessed by an external party, like a you know a bad actor, and uh, you know a lot of people might have immediately jumped to the conclusion, oh my God, so Intuit TurboTax had a data breach. That's not what happened here. This wasn't a problem with Intuit. Uh, it was probably more of a problem with you if you were a victim, yeah. and or your email provider. Uh, interesting that you know it wasn't a data breach. It was more uh, TurboTax finding something that sort of helped their users um, that had kind of put themselves in this situation. So, um, and they don't get into a lot of detail about what happened here, but they mentioned two things. Uh, credential stuffing occurred. Mm -hmm. So we probably talked about credential stuffing on the show before, but basically this is a real popular trend nowadays by bad actors where they're um, taking these lists of usernames and passwords typically email addresses and passwords, but sometimes just straight username and password, and um, from other data breaches. So, right. you know, there's all these data breaches that have occurred, they collect all these up, and then they'll try them against, you know, pop other popular websites, not where it was actually taken from, but with the assumption that these people, at least some percentage of them, probably reuse the same password, same username, same password that they used at this one site that was breached where they got their data right. breach from at all these other sites. And more often than not, people do. So first message is don't do that. Always use unique passwords, use complex passwords, uh, use a password manager if you can, but you know, very clearly do not reuse passwords. But the bigger thing I wanted to point out about this story, because uh, they kind of allude to it, and I think this might have happened here, is your email account. So. If a bad actor can get into your email account through a data breach, so let's say there was a data breach on some far-flung site, but you happen to use that same password right. for your email. So if that happens, bad actor can log into your email account up at whatever, Yahoo, Gmail, wherever it happens to be, because they have this, you use the same password there, and then they'll go to TurboTax into it, and they try to log in, they say, oh, I forgot my password, please reset it. It comes back to this email account that you have, they have access to your email. So right. the important thing is, is email, your email account, you need to really safeguard it nowadays. Your email account can be the keys to the kingdom in terms of uh, your, all of the websites that you might have access to, because through the reset password functionality uh, that a lot of uh, websites provide, you know, it might come back to your email address. That's a big. That's a big concern. Is if you can get into a site like TurboTax, you know, you can get social security right. numbers and addresses and birth dates and everything you need to steal identity is going to be on your tax return. Right. And or file a fake tax return as right. that person. Right. You know, which has been a trend over the previous few years. There was some issues with that. People filing f fake 
tax returns as people and having the money somehow sent to them or they get the check. Right. Um, but I think Jim makes a good point. It's even if they accessed it in you know non-filing time. Right. They the information that they're they're that they have access to once they're in your TurboTax account is another level of yeah. It's very yeah. highly sensitive. Yeah. Yeah. So so and that's why I wanted to make sure when people look at this story that they don't because they actually had to put a correction out when I read this article because they didn't phrase things quite right and it almost did seem like there was some kind of data breach into yeah. it and that is not what happened. It's not that they, you know, we see a lot of these websites get compromised because they have some vulnerability and then somebody dumps their entire right. database. That's not what happened here. It's just that people were using the same passwords. It's almost, at it's almost for TurboTax a service that they places. found. Like their user behavior came up with some, you know, positive response that led them to helping out these users right. more than they had a breach. Right, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, they they discovered a bad actor who was, you know, leveraging probably harvested passwords from somewhere else and um, uh, and then, you know, took action to make sure that those customers' accounts are secure, at least going forward uh, and protected. But, you know... Yeah, that's another important place where you turn on multi-factor authentication if you have the option. Yeah, I know with Gmail you can and a number of other ones you can. But turn on multi-factor. You know, you can get the app that you, sits on your phone that gives you the, the a six-digit code that you need to put in that's only good for 30 or 60 seconds. It's really not that onerous a, an additional, you know, yeah, for the yeah, peace of mind, it's worth doing. Uh, yeah. Especially if you ever, you know, hopefully whoever got scooped up in this issue will, you know, think twice about using simple passwords or reusing passwords across things and maybe increase their security posture a bit on um, some of the things that we're mentioning here, so. And the advice here is real, it's real clear. You know, you'd need to put it in big, bold, capital letters here. Don't reuse your passwords. Hey, Jim, I understand you're looking into a story about some new ransomware that's out there. This one, it's a, it's a new family of ransomware called CryptTor. This is a piece of ransomware that targets um, NAS devices, network-attached storage devices. It was discovered attacking a particular model. It's a D-Link model that isn't available for sale anymore. But it was a relatively popular model a few years ago, and it hasn't had a firmware update since 2016. This is a device that's basically no longer supported. So D-Link, the vendor, they haven't been patching, they haven't been releasing software, but people still own this, this stuff. Some people, unfortunately, make these available through port forwarding or put it directly on the internet. And if it's available to the internet, then it's possible to drop files on there and uh, get them to execute. And so this particular uh, piece of ransomware is an ELF binary, uh, the, the underlying operating system uh, on this D-Link was a stripped down Linux. And when it got on there, it just went through and uh, you know, as ransomware does, it encrypted lots of files, 
using uh, public-private key encryption. So it is uh, somewhat of a concern. I, like I said, it's not the first time we've seen this. The last time around, it was, I believe, Synology Disk Station Manager NAS devices. But you know, we need to keep uh, keep track of these and make sure that we're protecting them. Put a firewall in front of them so that they can't talk to the internet. It seems like a network attached storage is something you could have a real strict control list around. You know, it shouldn't need to. You know, unless you were trying to get to it from the internet, I'm not sure why you couldn't set up a pretty strict, you know, control list of where yeah. you're trying to get to your NAS from. Right? I'm going to guess people just figure that who's going to ever find it. Yeah. But <laughs> but if they watch the show, they know that right. it's going to be found probably in about five minutes from the time you expose it to the internet. Yeah. So don't ever assume that just because you expose something to the internet that nobody's going to find it. It will be found and probably exploited quickly. <laughs> so you need to be really careful about um, making sure you patch it, making sure uh, you're not exposing it to the internet in ways that uh, an attacker could unexpectedly compromise it. The thing I thought was kind of interesting about this is it's pretty smart, right, for a ransomware attacker to try to target something that is basically designed to store all of your important files, right? right? And network attached storage, that's its role. Right. So I already got the right thing I want. And these devices, I was just kind of looking here, there is a, uh, there's an undisclosed backdoor that is everybody knows about now, apparently. Yeah, disclosed. Which is probably what, how these things get compromised. If they're exposed to the internet, somebody you know, said, hey, there's a vulnerability for these. Let me just go pop them all yep. and uh, put this ransomware on there. So, you know, to me, it's, it's interesting that somebody has, I mean, it's not a, a far stretch to think, I guess, if you're a bad guy, but to go after, you know, a network attached storage and encrypt that, you're probably going to have more success in um, extorting that, that individual because there's probably, that's where he kept all his important stuff or right. stuff. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So important to be aware of, and as well as, like you said, apply patches if they're available. And if they aren't available and you have a device that's old and it's kind of been discontinued support, be really cautious about yeah. exposing that in any way, shape, or form to something that could be, you know, people could get to. Because the vulnerability might get found and not be patched. So there's still no patches, Jim? Still no patches. Like I said, the, the device is not available for sale anymore. Okay. Uh, I'm not sure if, if D-Link was going to go back and uh, update, you know, create a new firmware for it. But the most recent one, as of a couple of days ago, for this device was one from 2016. It sort of shows you that the onus has to be on the user at some point, because when you see signs that this is no longer a supported product, uh, you're really putting yourself in a bind if you continue to use that, and especially when it's something that's exposed to the network. So Joe, I understand you have a DNS hijacking story for us? Yeah, so um, Brian Krebs did a real deep dive on DNSpionage, which is the sort of cover name for a big host of DNS hijacking events that came out. Um, Talos 
rele received, uh, released a blog in November, and then CrowdStrike and FireEye followed in January with additional details. And Brian Krebs just kind of, he goes through all the, you know, the list of domains that were known to be hijacked and really gets deep, like Brian Krebs does, into what exactly happened. And he always tries to get to sort of attribution about who might be responsible. Um, so in this case, um, you know, the blog posts all listed a uh, block of domains, primarily Middle Eastern government services like the UAE's email server was on there. Um, and basically what happened is, uh, you know, the, the DNSs were hijacked and he found the times of each and, and then shortly after certificates changes were made. Um, and, and, you know, he's using Farsight and a company called Security Trails to, to monitor the passive DNS, see when these changes were made. Um, and then the, the real interesting part is after the DNS was hijacked, um, they take a next step to go after the registrars. These malicious actors went so far as to go after the, the messaging protocol, EPP, that allows DNS registrars to communicate. Now the concern is that with that being compromised, you know, should other DNS agents trust EPP messages from these registrars? So the, you know, the repercussions are fairly significant. Um, but, you know, Brian Krebs always does a great job. I, I kind of cue in closely to his stuff because he's, he does a real good analysis. And even if somebody else has already released the newsworthy stuff, he'll kind of get into the details. Okay. And As opposed to kind of a very high level thing where we got from some of these other reports early, uh, in the previous months, this got really down into the meat and potatoes of uh, uh, what really happened and to who. And in this case, which he doesn't always do, he did list some um, sort of ways to recover, things to protect against, which is usually something we do. But he, you know, obviously mentioned DNSSEC as something you want to enable if you can. Um, you know, kind of like also our IoT discussion, don't ignore your DNS. You know, there's some companies that don't monitor for changes to DNS. Um, make sure you're aware of what's going on with your DNS. Uh, use two-factor authentication on your front end, which we've talked about. And then also um, put in an access control list for your DNS. Uh, and actually, there's also a feature, which is one of the ways the, the registrar is recovered, is, and they, they, they said in the story that they wish they had done this before, but you know, everybody mm -hmm. wishes after, right. is I'm lock sorry. your domain. So you can, you can put in a domain lock that you know, won't allow your DNS to be changed, hijacked, uh, unless a certain set of things are done. Right. You know, it's kind of like locking your credit, you know, Interesting. Uh, so that's that's available now, and that's the type of thing that you know, if at all possible, it would be a smart thing to do. Right. So. Especially if you're a high profile, or you know, government. I mean, pretty email. much everybody is, right? right yeah. You probably every even if it's like a little home domain or something, you know, um, you probably want to make sure that you have your domain registration locked down pretty tightly, yeah. so they can't be um, hijacked or taken over. Um, One of the interesting quotes that. It, for me in this story was, you know, even organizations that were monitoring their DNS might not have caught it. It, um, it depends on how you do your monitoring. Right. There's a quote in here, we had three different commercial DNS monitoring services, none of which caught this. None of them warned us that it had happened after the fact. 
And my guess is because they only took a snapshot like once a day or something. Right. Ah, uh, yep, right. You know, if, if, even if you're watching it, if you're not watching it properly, you know, you could still be vulnerable for some considerable period of time. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, because yeah. I would imagine they probably went in, they repointed it for, you know, maybe just a few hours during that period of the day or something, and then repointed it back to where it's supposed to be to kind of cover their tracks. And like you said, yeah. these services that are looking for changes, if they only do daily snapshots, they're not going to see that. Uh, so that's interesting. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for bringing this one. I think it's, uh, like you said, Krebs does a really good thorough analysis here, so I'd recommend people check it out. It's a good read. It shows how how deep this uh, you know compromise went, and the extent that this group went to to really get at the the soul of DNS. All right, Joe. I thought we'd take a look at the internet weather for this week. Uh, no big surprises, but we'll take a look a look at a couple of the notable ports. This is the most probe ports where we see most of the activity uh, just by sheer volume. No big surprises. We talk about this kind of week in, week out. 445 is your Microsoft file sharing port. Telnet, SSH, a lot of IoT things scanning for that. Port 81 TCP is the go-ahead web server. Um, 8545 TCP is the Ethereum wallet. Uh, we've talked about this. There's a lot of actors out there, and some have been very successful in scooping up a lot of uh, vulnerable Ethereum wallets and stealing the cryptocurrency out of them. Uh, Road desktop protocol we see all the time as well. Uh, just general web traffic. The 5555 TCP is related mostly to Android debugger, but we're actually seeing like a TR64 type uh, um, exploit being attempted against this, which I don't think is the actual Android debugger. So I think there's something else on this port when we look in our honeypots that we actually see them trying to um, attack. <clears throat> and I think on other shows, I've actually shown a couple of samples of that. And this is an alternate web port that we see a lot as well. There's a lot of uh, administrative services like Tomcat runs on this, so it could be people looking for that or other things of that nature. So I guess just even though there's not much change, it's good to know where the sort of focus points are and what's being probed. You know, even though it's fairly consistent, it's you know if you're doing hygiene, if you're aware of your network, it's good to know where the real attention spots are and where they're likely to be in the future, seeing that it's gotten to be pretty consistent over time. Right, so if you have uh, devices that are exposing these services, these are the ones that I would say you should really focus on. These botnets and these, you know, these actors continue going after, at volume, the same ports, so it's, it's pretty consistent. Um, in terms of most sources probing, we see a lot of repeats, so I won't, um, I won't go into detail on the ones we already talked about, but there are a few here we'll take a look at. So 5431 TCP jumped up 124 positions from last week, and we'll take a look at why that is and what this actually is in a second. Um, and then also uh, 37215 TCP, that jumped up one position. We have seen this um, over the past uh, probably a couple of months, if not more. Uh, so let's go to the first one. So 5431 TCP, this is actually uh, something that was stumping us for a lot of, I guess it was 2018, because what we were seeing was these spikes like this. And I was having a hard time figuring out what is this, because it was a lot of sources. Um, back in the day, this is only showing 60 days, but I think back in 2018, we were up or near 100,000 sources uh, scanning for this. And they were doing so in very tight, narrow windows of time, which is not... Yeah typical of what we see for botnet activity. 
But you can see we had some very persistent uh, scanning at some point uh, in early or I guess the late part of January here of this year. And then it went back to the spiky stuff. And then just recently, we got another run of very consistent long duration uh, scanning activity. Looks a little bit different than uh, what we typically see in terms of botnet behaviors and characteristics in our flood data when we look at the charts. So we'll see this, you know, kind of sawtooth decay here on normal botnet activity, but this is very contracted. Normally yeah. it's a much wider period of time. And when you look at this, it's maybe an hour or two each of these little spikes. So that's very like narrow, precise windows. We don't normally see that happen. So it's unusual. Could it be, I mean, this is just conjecture, but is it possible that it scans until it finds a uh, vulnerable and then- I don't know. And then uses the same resources to execute something and then doesn't scan until it, find, it needs to find another? I don't know. I mean, it almost seems like they're giving them an instruction to say scan, For this. but by all means, never scan beyond like 60 minute time window. Mm -hmm. If I tell you now, stop in 60 minutes, never okay. continue. This is the article from uh, 360 NetLab. Uh, the thing I took away, this is a, a good read, but um, it's interesting that what happens is it does a probe for port 54 or 31 TCP. It sends a SYN packet. And if it gets a SYNAC back, it doesn't really engage beyond that. Um, it immediately aborts that. And then it goes to doing a UDP 1900 SSDP discover uh, to see if it looks like it's uh, infectable and tries to do that as the, I guess, the exploitation ve uh, vector. Um, there's a bit more things that go on here. They don't go into uh, explicit detail how it works. The uh, NetLab 360 guys did a really interesting write-up on it for those that are interested in exactly how it works and uh, how it's exploiting the devices and whatnot. So let's take a look at the second one, which was 37.215 TCP. This is related to um, a remote code ex execution exploit against Huawei routers. Uh, that kind of became... Uh, somewhere, somewhere last year. I don't think it was actually in July where we saw the uptick in activity. I think it was a little bit before here. Um, but somewhere in July, people really got on the bandwagon, or I should say bad actors did, and they started using this as an um, exploit technique to try to recruit more devices of this type into their botnets. And um, we do have an example of what this one looks like. And you can actually see it's related to Huawei. So. Um, what it does, it goes and tries to make a post to this URL, uh, this TR64 URL. TR64 is a management protocol for routers, and uh, that's what they're sending these requests to the device. Uh, but there's a lot of them. I don't know who programs these things, but this is not atypical. Uh, they have vulnerabilities in the way they wrote the, the code that parses these XML, and it's not paying attention to the fact that what I'm passing in here is actually telling you to execute something. Oh. It's, you know, you're supposed to pass in a URL, but what they're passing in is dollar sign and paren wrapped uh, instruction in Linux, which would execute um, on the back end if you, if you have this exploit, which it does. And what they, it actually, uh, the other thing I thought was interesting is they do this in two passes, which normally they do this in one pass um, in other types of ones that we've seen. But first they do a wget uh, trying to fetch this, this file called slash x from this IP address. And then they write it to this directory on the device. And then a, and they make a second request to actually try to run it. They change the, the bits on it to make it executable. And then they run it with a parameter of Huawei. 
um, and then they delete itself. Uh, so then it's in memory and it's running actively on the device. And then engages in scanning for probably more of these. Um, when I grabbed this sample, I actually grabbed it to take a look because I was kind of curious. Uh, it does come back in virus total as Mirai mostly or some Mirai-like variant. Yeah. So Mirai, as we know, the source code kind of got out there on the internet. So a lot of people have been cobbling it together to form right. their own kind of similar versions. So um, I believe this is probably some Mirai-like variant as opposed to the original Mirai from several years ago. Uh, just uses similar code base to that and um, trying to spread that way. Cool. So uh, those are really the only two that I thought were notable this week and um, nice. hopefully it gives people some insight into what to look out for out there. Thanks, John. Yep. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.